Happy Easter. Good morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Shelton said, if you're visiting with us, uh, we, we are, we're so glad that you chose to come. And um, you may, after the service, want to go back to the book table. There, we have a, a lot of uh, free resources back there, including uh, several free copies of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Easter, if you're interested. Also, if you're visiting with us, and um, one of our hopes and aspirations, our plans for the upcoming year is to uh, plant a church in downtown Boise. So if by chance you live you know, closer to downtown, and um, this is a bit of a drive for you to get out here, uh, you know, talk to us, and we'd be we'd love to share with you you know information about the church plant that's a, a, upcoming. It's going to Lord willing start at the end of the summer. You know, all of our Good Friday readings. If you were here on Good Friday, you, you know that they were taken from the Gospel of John, and I thought it would be appropriate then to preach the sermon also from John's Gospel, beginning in chapter twenty, verse tw- verse one. Before I read the passage, though, I came across a blog this week that was uh, written by a young woman who started out as a Hindu. Then she journeyed into the Baha'i faith and dabbled with that for a little while. Before then, she finally became a Christian. And uh, what what drew me to this blog, she just has a very fresh and real perspective of what it's like to hear all of this stuff as an outsider for the very first time. Because there's so much insider language that we use on, I mean, Christ is risen. We have all these exclamation points in our bulletin more than any other service of the year. Uh, what does this all, what does all, all mean? And she has this very helpful perspective that, uh, that I want to share with you. I think it's good for all of us to hear this as she writes this. <clears throat> Christians claim that Jesus was God, was the Son of God, and uh, all this stuff about a trinity which I really had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Um, Not that I didn't believe Jesus couldn't rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance that could have since I, I didn't understand about the fall or sin or a final resurrection uh, I, I assumed that these had no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale, honestly. Uh, maybe, maybe metaphorical spiritual meanings, but that's it. And I, I wasn't interested. Largely because no one uh, ever told me the importance that this event should have to me. No Christian ever explained it to me. They just say crazy stuff like, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins. Don't you want to be saved? And it all made zero sense to me. It it, it was just as though someone said, my red balloon popped, and then candy canes fell out of the sky. Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't this all want want you to buy a new, uh, make you want to buy a new Nissan? (laughs) And she says, I'm not exaggerating. This this gospel message makes absolutely no sense to someone who's an outsider. No, No meaningful sense anyway. You, ha- you have no idea why they are so excited about, yeah, so what? Jesus rose from the dead. Big whoop. So what? Good for him. But so what? Now, I love the candor that she speaks with there. Uh, I, I, we do have all this insider lingo. And it can sound, if it is not, not explained in fuller detail, it can sound like gibberish 
to people. And so what I, what I hope I will do, and I, what I think Shelton has already done a good job of so far in the service, is just explain what, what is the significance. So what? So, so what that he rose from the dead? Why does the church go nuts on Easter? Well, let's consider that then from John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And and, um, so that is basically John's way. John's writing this gospel. It's his self-designation, his uh, self-description, the disciple who Jesus loved. Uh, He said to that disciple, she said to Peter and that disciple, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Uh, and what they did with bodies at that time is they, they would put a, a circular cloth that would basically keep the jaw of the body uh, attached to, to the head. And that's the one he's referring to there. Um, and he saw that was folded up by itself, self, separate from the linen wrappings. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed that they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? He said, who is it that you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will, I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, (laughs) Go instead to my brothers. Not go instead to those miserable deserters and go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what, what he, uh, that he had said these things to her. Uh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Thank you very much, Father, for these words of John. I thank you for the beautiful celebration that we have this morning. And we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit down upon us. And your Spirit would give us deeper insight, a full encouragement 
faith and hope uh, by listening to the proclamation of this good news, the, the Easter good news. And we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> How many of you have heard the name of Apollo Robbins before? Have you ever watched any of his vi- videos or, or um, heard the name of that guy? So, You'll have to look him up later today. Apollo Robbins is, quote-unquote, a sleight-of-hand artist. You say, what is that? Sleight-of-hand artist. He's not a magician. He doesn't do card tricks. It turns out he's a professional pickpocket. And he is so good that companies have now started to hire him as a security consultant because he can, he can take things off of your person and you have absolutely no idea that it's even happened. So I was watching him, watching a video on YouTube. Uh, they brought him onto the, t- the Today Show, the morning show, uh, a few years back. And they invited him to do some sleight of hand demonstrations with the three hosts, all, the three male hosts, I think Matt Lauer and a, a couple other guys. And basically, Robbins, at the head of time, he says, you see that, wa- that, wrist, uh, that um, watch on your wrist? I'm going to take that. <laughs> and your, your billfold? I'm going to take that. And, and then he hands one guy a $100 bill. He said, stick that inside your coat pocket. I'm going to take that. He, I mean, he doesn't say it in exactly those words, but you can, you can get the gist. He, he says, I'm going to take it. And within, I kid you not, three minutes— Maybe five minutes, he has taken every single one of them. And, uh, and they didn't even realize it, especially the guy with the wristwatch. He is shocked when all of a sudden Robbins goes, oh, and, and by the way, here you go. And he hands him back the wristwatch. And the guy's like, no, how did you do that? How did you do that? And they ask him that question, how did you do that? And he says, he says well, you know, we, there are tricks that you can play on the brain. Uh, human beings are incredibly distractible. And if you can get a human to focus on something over here, then they're not paying attention to something over there. Uh, and that's how I'm able to do this. Well, I, I say all of that as an introduction to, to this morning's sermon um, because we should ask, I really do think we should ask about Easter. From time to time, we should ask, was it a hoax? Did these 12 apostle guys pull off what would have to be considered the greatest con job in the history of the world. Were they kind of an Apollo Robbins before his time, before their time? And did we get the world's largest religion, because that's what Christianity is, the largest religion based on human distractibility? One of the things I love about the Bible, and if you're not very familiar with it, we speak about candor, the candor of that lady at the beginning of the sermon. You know, the Bible is a, is a very candid document. And you may not know this, but the Bible is the one that actually asks that question. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we quoted some of that in our assurance of pardon already. He's the, he's the one who broaches the question to the Corinthians, Christian, Corinthian Christians. Have you ever thought about the fact that this might be a hoax? He says, and if this is a hoax, then, and he points the finger at himself, then I am the most to be pitied because I have been going all around the world telling people that this is real. And then he points the, f- the finger at the rest of the Christians and he says, and we are absolutely pitiful because we have built our lives on a lie and we are still left in our sins. 
I, just, I think that's really interesting that it's, it's the Bible which asks that question. And uh, what I love about this passage in John's gospel, we'll look at it right now, is, is yeah, Easter could be a hoax. It could be a hoax. But if you read these first century documents, especially this one, you find there is a great deal of, for lack of a better word, realism. There is tons of realism that is embedded, uh, maybe secretly or, or as we study it, there's realism, simply put, that is embedded in this document, in this, in this account. And it suggests just the opposite, that this, this is no hoax. So, all right, number one. Uh, what's the, the first indicator of this? If you read any one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you will, what you'll find out is Jesus repeatedly says that I'm going to rise on the third day. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 9, as an example, he says, quote, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, got that? It says the same thing in Luke chapter 18. The Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him. They'll insult him. They'll spit on him. They'll flog him. They'll kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Right? Over and over, he says, and on the third day, I will rise again. Fast forward to Easter morning. Fast forward to the third day. And you look around outside the tomb. Where is everybody? <laughs> Where are they? Now, why, have you ever wondered, why didn't the disciples you know, set up kind of a campfire, a camp outside of the tomb on Easter morning that kind of hold an all-night vigil, getting ready for the fireworks that were, were predicted to uh, fire on Sunday morning? Where is everybody? And the answer is, of course, they don't believe it's going to happen. They're not there because they don't believe it's even conceivable. Um, even though Jesus had repeatedly kind of called his shot, <laughs> they, had, they really had no idea that this could w- and would possibly take place. Why? Why is that? Well, I think the real game changer was a book that came out about 15 years ago. It was written by the New Testament scholar, famous scholar, uh, you may have heard of him before, Tom Wright or N.T. Wright. Wright p- publishes about 15 years ago, a thousand-page historical tome entitled The Resurrection of the Son of God. And it's, it's basically a book that's entirely devoted to doing the history and figuring out what did the people in the first century, what did they in their context believe about bodily resurrection? And at the end of a thousand pages, after he combs like every available historical document, he reaches this conclusion that nowhere in recorded history— Nowhere at that point in time was there any Greek or Roman or Jew who ever believed of the bodily resurrection of an individual in the, human, in the middle of human history as a, as a permanent thing. Nobody was thinking of that. It was inconceivable. It was absolutely inconceivable. So in verse 1, then we go back to our passage. When Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she sees the stone is rolled away, she doesn't say, she doesn't say, hallelujah, just like, just like he predicted it would happen. What does she do? 
She just reaches the most natural conclusion that any one of us would have reached, which is basically somebody stole the body. Oh my goodness, somebody has stole the body. I can't believe this has happened. It doesn't even dawn on her. And so she runs back to these other, uh, to the, the Peter and John and says, somebody's stolen the body. It, it's not here. Now, what do we know about Mary Magdalene? Um, and because she's a very important figure in this, in this narrative. What do we know about her? And the answer is we don't know a whole lot. All we really know about Mary Magdalene you know, throughout all the silly Da Vinci Code stuff, um, basically is, is what we read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter, I think it's chapter 9, maybe it's chapter 8 or so, where it says that Mary Magdalene, she was possessed by uh, seven demons. And seven in the Bible is kind of a symbolic number, but the, the idea being that her body, before she ever met Jesus Christ, like her body was a playground for the demonic you think how horrific it would be to be possessed by one demon. And here's a woman who's got you know, something that symbolically refers to seven. Um, she's a, she can do nothing for herself. She's an absolute... Um, we would, if we met her, we would say this woman is a mental case. She was an absolute mental case. And Jesus comes into her life and he frees her of this bondage. And she... Uh, we read then later in Luke's gospel that she and several other women end up becoming financial supporters of Jesus. After she has the demons cast out, she's like 100% uh, in support of Jesus. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But back to our passage, verse 3. So we get this uh, wonderful eyewitness detail, or so it would seem, of John and Peter. They're running to the tomb. Uh, I included on the front of your bulletin an artistic rendering of this. It's seemingly an eyewitness detail because it doesn't really advance the plot all that much. I mean, why would John record that he beat Peter in a foot race? I mean, I kind of doubt that he's bragging about the fact that he has, you know, better 100 meter speed or anything like that. It's, it's, but it's the kind of detail that if it happens, it's, it's reasonable that, that it was included. So John gets there, and he looks inside the tomb, and he sees the strips of linen that were wrapped around Jesus' body laying flat. It's almost as if Jesus, his resurrected body, has passed through those linen strips, and they've just, you know, uh, nothing's there inside anymore, and they've just laid there flat. And then he sees though somebody has taken that big circular cloth that was wrapped around the head and has folded it up and put it at the top. Uh, but John, notice he doesn't run in. He gets there first, but he doesn't run in. He waits for the, his elder, Peter, because Peter's the older of the two. And he waits for elder to come uh, to, to arrive. And Peter gets there. He doesn't wait a second because Peter, he's bold. He, he just bursts right in and he sees all of it. Then finally John comes in. In verse 8, very importantly, it says there, if you look at verse 8, that John believed But then in verse 9, it indicates he didn't really believe. He didn't really believe that Jesus was raised. I mean, as the rest of the gospel will make clear, neither of those two men believed that Jesus was risen. They walked back to the home in Jerusalem believing simply that the body's gone. It's gone. We don't know where it is. So here's what I love about, uh, another thing I love about the passage, a, a 
what we would call this a second layer. John is there. Peter is there. Mary is there. And Jesus is there. Like Jesus is somewhere around there. But he waits until the men go so that he would deliberately appear to Mary. Now, here's the, here's the thing to think about. If John and the disciples were fabricating a story about Jesus rising from the dead, why would they choose a former mental patient and a woman to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? I mean, that would be a tremendous blow to any credibility to the story. Why, why, would, why would they do that? Unless, of course, it's a fact that actually happened. You know, Jesus is an—why did he wait for Mary? I think it was just as an act of grace. To, I love you, Mary. I don't care about your pedigree. I don't care what other people are going to think. I, I have chosen you to be my first eyewitness, the first one to receive my love. And, you know, he doesn't care about pedigree or social standing. It's almost as if Jesus' attitude is the worse your pedigree, your education level, and uh, your social standing, the better. Because <laughs> those are the kinds of people he, um, he befriends. Uh, the other thing I say almost every Easter is what's so amazing about this is that in the first century, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in a court of law. Women could not testify in a Jewish or a Roman court of law. Um, it was, their testimony was deemed inadmissible because women were considered unreliable in that cultural context. And so why, if you're making up a story, why in the world would you make it up in such a way that none of the disciples believe it happened and your first eyewitness is, uh, is a woman? I'll put it to you this way. Most of us have read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, haven't we? And we know that in that story, Atticus Finch is a Depression-era attorney defending a black man of raping a white woman in the South. And since there are no witnesses to the alleged attack, it's one of those classic he said, she said cases. Atticus Finch passionately defends this man who he truly believes is innocent. But he knows that that white jury is going to convict him. Uh, they're going to look at his client, an uneducated black man, and that man is going to have no credibility whatsoever with an all-white and presumably racist jury. They're going to look at the color of his skin and immediately suspect him as lying. And as sexist as it may sound, that's kind of exactly how women were regarded in the first century with that level of extreme skepticism. And so, really, the only reason to include that detail is if it actually happened. Okay, the third level, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, crying, and she wept. Uh, the text doesn't say why she stays there, um, but we can, we can kind of assume why would she go back? Why would she just stay at the tomb? Isn't it because Jesus was the love of her life? Jesus was the one who had freed her and had completely changed her life. Her life. And she's just going back to the place where she last knew he was. And it says that she's not merely crying. She is weeping. She is weeping. We know the difference. When you cry, you just 
leak a little bit of water. <laughs> when you are weeping, you know, your eyes have puffed up and your nose is just a slobbery mess. And you, she's a complete mess. And she's just there bawling her eyes out. And she looks inside to the tomb and, and kind of, probably kind of, um, just kind of out of it. And she looks inside and sees two guys in there that turn out to be angels. She doesn't even realize probably that they're angels. And they ask her the most inappropriate question in the world to ask a woman outside of a tomb, which is, woman, why are you weeping? (laughs) Imagine going to a graveyard today and finding a weeping woman and saying, woman, why are you weeping? (laughs) And she says, he's gone. And then in that blubbery mess, okay, do you get the picture? She, She turns and she senses there's a man behind her. It's low light. It's early in the morning. She thinks, what? He's a gardener or a groundskeeper. And he asks that same, that same inappropriate question. Woman, why are you weeping? What are you looking for? And we get to what I think is the, whole, is the key to the whole passage. And it's this. At that moment, Jesus Christ, he had to have been feeling absolutely awesome. He had to, and I say that not flippantly, he had to have been feeling awesome. He's been resurrected. And we know, what is it like when you go through something in your life, a, a period that is incredibly painful and difficult, and you go through that and you get out to the other side of that? You, how fantastic does it feel to finally get through something so grueling, amazing? And he has done the hardest thing in the whole world. He has just borne sin and death and the curse, and he finished it. He said, It is finished. Now, I have to believe at that moment, he feels like a, a gajillion bucks. I mean, he is on top of the world. And Mary looks at him and she says, Sir, she doesn't recognize him. Sir, if you have moved the body, would you just tell me where the body is and I'll go take care of it? She's thinking of those grave clothes. And she's thinking that the body has been unraveled and that Jesus' corpse is right now decomposing and rotting. And she says, please, if you know where it is, I'll take care of it. Just please tell me where the body, where the body is. And oh, how I wish, <laughs> oh, how I wish we had an audio recording of, of how he said what happens next. Because he's feeling, he's feeling amazing. And he says, Mary. That's all he says. Mary. He just calls her name. And it's like, Mary, I did it. I, I promised you, didn't I? Remember all those times? I promised you I would do it. I would do it. And I, and I did it. Mary. I did it, and I always tell the truth. Uh, The voice that spans the years, speaking life, stirring hope, bringing peace to her, as we sung about a little bit earlier. Uh, How many of you, I'm getting near to the end of the sermon, but how many of you have read Stephen Covey's very popular leadership book, uh, the, what is it, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? I guess we don't have very highly effective people in the, in the room today. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a bestseller. It sold tons of copies. Well, st- there's a story that Stephen Covey's daughter tells when she was 12 years old. 
Her dad was planning to speak, as he did quite often, but speak at a conference and give a presentation in San Francisco. And they decided that she would come on the trip with him. And so him and his 12-year-old daughter, they'd been planning this for months. And they agreed what would happen is she would sit in the back of the auditorium. And then before he was mobbed by people afterwards all asking questions, he was going to find her in the back of the auditorium. Uh, He was going to whisk her away. And they would hop on a San Francisco trolley. And they would go to Chinatown. And they were going to eat Chinese food. Because Chinese food was their favorite kind of food. And then they were going to buy a souvenir from the city of San Francisco. And then they were going to walk around town and and take in the sights. And then they would, quote, catch a flick, as my dad liked to say. We'd catch a flick together. And then we'd grab a taxi and go back to the hotel. Swim in the hotel pool at night. And then we're going we're gonna to go back to the hotel room, and we're going to order room service. And we're going to have room service bring us in a hot fudge Sunday, uh, And we're going to watch the Late Late Show together. And what, hap- what they did is they, they rehearsed this over and over again. It was almost like a liturgy between the father and his daughter. They repeated over and over, what are we going to do, honey? Oh, we're going to do this, Dad. And then we're going to do this, Dad. And we're going to do this, this. They repeated it. So the time comes— Covey heads to San Francisco with, with Cynthia. He, he speaks. He goes to the back of the room. He's walking out of the room with his 12-year-old daughter. And before they get to the trolley, he runs into a former college roommate, a guy who he's really close to, a guy who is actually also a business associate. And they are hitting it off. They're like, Oh, it's so great to see you again. They're enthusiastically talking to each other. And his friend says, man, Stephen, I'm so excited. You know, our company is going to be doing some stuff with your company. Listen, I got this great idea. Lois and I are planning, we're headed off to an amazing seafood dinner at Fisherman's Wharf. And why do we do this? You and Cynthia, you've got to come with us tonight. We're going to have, we're going to paint the town. We've got to host you tonight. It's going to be fantastic. And Cynthia hears her dad say, Bob, it's so wonderful to see you. Dinner at the wharf sounds great. And her heart just like, boom. She's crestfallen and it hits the ground. Until he says, but we can't do it tonight because Cynthia, and he he turns to her, he says her name. Cynthia and I have a big date, right? And he winks at her, and he goes over there, and he takes her by the hand, and he whisks her off to the trolley. And um, Stephen Covey ends up, I forget what year he died, but he died shortly thereafter. And as she was giving this interview in 2012, she said, when he did that for me, when he did that quote, it bonded me to him forever because I knew what mattered most to him was me. And I've got to think, when, uh, when Jesus says, Mary, it is kind of like that moment. Mary, I promised you, didn't I? I promised you we would do this. And when God promises us something, it's not pretend. Folks, it's not pretend. It's real. When I promise you that I'm going to rise from the dead, when I promise you that I'm going to make things right, when I promise you that there's going to be a third day, 
The reason that Easter is regarded as such a high watermark of the Christian year is, is simply that that man made a promise that he kept. That is, that's entirely what our faith is based upon. That man made a promise to his sons and daughters that he kept. And I think Mary realizes that. She realizes that this man is alive And maybe with time, she began to realize all of the great implications of this. That depression and addiction and loneliness and heartbreak, all of those will be destroyed. All of the things that we hate in this world, all the things we despise about this world, all the bombings of Christian churches, Jesus' resurrection is God's guarantee uh, that all of those are going to be destroyed. And And at that moment, when he feels so good, I, I wonder if he almost winked at her. <laughs> and of course, the story goes on, and I don't have time to tell any more of it. He, she tackles him. She holds him in a death grip. She doesn't want to ever let him go. What I want you to see is it took an overwhelming piece of objective evidence to break through their worldview and to believe in something as crazy as this, because none of them were expecting it to happen. Not a single one of them were expecting it to happen. Uh, someone posted this on Facebook just the other day. It was a quote by Chuck Colson. You might have seen it, at least it was on my feed. So if we share kind of some of the same people, you may have seen it. Uh, Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's right hand man during Watergate, and Colson ended up being one of the fall guys, and ended up going to prison. And then it was in prison that Colson became a Christian. And he said, reflecting on his own experience, he says, I know the resurrection is a fact. And you know why? Watergate proved it to me. Because 12 men in the first century testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of those men were were beaten, they were tortured, they were stoned, they were put in prison, and they were killed. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Like in my case, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. (laughs) You're telling me that these 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years and through torture? Yeah, right. (laughs) I want to end by saying this. If you trust in Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are his, um, if you've repented of your sins and you've come to know him, um, he knows you. (laughs) He knows you. He, He knows your name. And he will call your name. He will call you out of the grave on the last day. And there's so many wonderful implications of the resurrection that if you dig a little more into Christian theology, you'll discover. But uh, here are a few of them. Jesus is risen, and therefore death is annihilated. Jesus is risen, and therefore evil will be eradicated. Jesus is risen, therefore his father is our father, and we are his brothers and sisters. Jesus is risen, therefore death is dead, love has won, Christ has conquered, and we shall reign with him. For he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. To him be the power and the glory and the honor, now and forevermore. Amen.